Please do turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 4. We're doing this short series at the moment called Hear My Cry, Learning to Pray with the Psalms. And the reason that we're doing it is that we all need help with prayer. On the one hand, prayer is pretty much the simplest thing in the world, isn't it? The youngest child, when she learns to speak, can pray a lisping prayer of just a few words that delights God. On the other hand, the most mature, profound believer who has walked with God over many decades can still grow in the life of prayer. And some of us, if we're really honest, have mixed feelings about prayer, don't we? We feel that our experience of prayer isn't what it should be. We can find prayer dry, dutiful, even boring. And yet, we know it could be so much more than that. Now, my suspicion also is in a church like ours, there'll be some people for whom prayer is basically associated with guilt. You don't pray and you feel really bad about it. So you kind of pretend. (laughs) You know that Christians should pray. You have an uneasy sense that you really should pray more. And yet, for a whole load of reasons, you just don't. And let me tell you, it is the easiest thing in the world for a preacher to put a guilt trip on someone. I'm not going to do it. In this short journey in the Psalms, we are exploring new territory in how to pray with the hope that it will just renew us and inspire us and fuel our prayer lives to a new level. Like the disciples who came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, we're asking the Lord to teach us to pray with these Psalms. And we are in good company. As John has mentioned, Christians have sung the psalms in their gathered worship for centuries. And there's a very long tradition, centuries old, for Christians to read a psalm every day. The psalms are the songbook. They're also the prayer book of the Bible. They teach us to pray. And last week, we looked at Psalm 3, which we've just sung. And it was, had quite a few surprises, didn't it? Life is full of troubles, we learned. Some of them are your own making. You can trust God with everything, so take it all to him. And I've had some encouraging feedback from people this week about that psalm. It's particularly striking to us how real it is. You don't have to stop crying, wash your face, tidy up a bit, and put on a prayer voice and a smart frock before you can approach God. Psalm 3 was the naked cry of a man who has been treated appallingly by people who really should know better, And it shows us how to process the emotions that come in life. We are not to stuff our emotions and just sort of squash them down and pretend they're not there. But we are to bring them into the presence of a loving father who wants to hear from us. We go and sit on his knee and we work it through with him. And we thought last week about it, the psalm even includes the prayer, Lord, I wish you would smash their teeth in. Well, that's reality. A friend, Gareth Edwards, sent me a great quote this week from a book he was reading. It says this, Our emotions are fundamentally designed to force us to engage with God. Our emotions are fundamentally designed to force us to engage with God. But the great lie is that we can and should deal with our emotions apart from bringing them to the Lord. Isn't that what we do? I'll deal with my emotions over here on my own 
or with my friends, or with my counsellor, but I re- what you really need to do is engage with God on them. And so this week we're in Psalm 4, which... Uh, Toby just read for us, and again, emotions here force the writer David to engage with God. And what we find in this psalm is that you can have peace, you can experience peace, and be unafraid in spite of circumstances. In spite of your circumstances, you still experience peace. And I've got three points. Firstly, we learn that we've got to name reality. Secondly, we learn we've got to examine ourselves. And thirdly, we think about how to trust God. Name reality, examine yourself, and trust God. So firstly, name reality. Just tell it as it is in prayer. In Psalm 4, we come into the life situation of a man who is in great distress. He says in verse 1, Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me. And hear my prayer. And the writer is King David and he's being oppressed by other people and it is not just. He's in a situation of injustice. Other people are seizing power. They're causing his suffering. And they seem to be winning. And he's living a nightmare now. And there's no sign where it's going to end. So the first thing we learn in prayer is you just got to name reality. Fusion, you've got your little worksheet there. Have a look at that second question. What does David do when he's in trouble and why? He names reality. He tells God what's really going on. Verse 1 says, relief from my distress. And the Hebrew language, which this is originally written in, is really um, picked like a colorful when it has this, what it means, this word distress. It's the same word that's used for being in a hard place or a tight corner or really sort of boxed in and cramped and you've got no room. So it's an image of someone who's kind of trapped. That's that's the language behind being distressed. You're in dire straits, a hard corner, longing to be brought into a wide space. So he's praying, Lord, in a narrow place, bring me into a wide place. Experience of distress. I wonder if you've, if you've felt that or you are feeling that in your life. You just feel boxed in. You've got no room to maneuver. You're, you're, you're trapped. How is it ever going to change? And with, with David, the writer, there's also the experience of being humiliated. People treating him contemptuously. Look at verse 2. It says, How long will you people turn my glory into shame? That phrase means that he is being disgraced. His honor, his reputation is being tarnished and torn down by people who are slandering him and talking and persuading others to to despise him and distrust him. It's a very hard experience, that. Have you ever experienced anything like that, being humiliated by other people, is hard to bear. And, and what makes it worse is that it's, it's unjust and they seem to be getting away with it. And actually, they're doing quite well. Look at verse 7. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. So they're getting lots of grain, their crops are doing well and they're getting lots of grapes and they're, they're producing wine. They seem to be doing really well and he's thinking, Lord, it just isn't right. It just isn't right. And you know life is full of situations like that. And so there's an experience of gloom. Verse 6. 
many people around him are asking this question, who will bring us prosperity? It suggests that his friends, his companions, those around him are losing heart in the situation. We're in a bad place. We're being treated unfairly. They're doing really well. The people that are doing wrong are actually prospering. Lord, who's going to help us? Where have we got to turn? There's gloom. They're losing heart. The whole experience feels like it's never going to end. Verse 2, he asks twice, how long, how long, how long will it go on? And that's a a prayer that's often repeated in the Psalms. The psalmists rehearse some difficult situation, some, some depressing situation, and they pray, how long, O Lord? How long? And when you're in a hard place, friends, and some of you are at the moment, you just feel like it's never going to end. You feel like you might go out of your mind. You can see no help. You're being boxed in. Your mind feels like it's trapped in it. And it just, it feels like it's, you you can't do anything. You're so powerless. You You pray, how long, Lord, how long? So here we are, again, in a very real situation, and he is naming reality in his prayer do you ever find yourself struggling with feelings like these of course you do then name reality bring it into the presence of the Lord he knows about it already by the way but it will do you good to talk about it it will do you good to just put it all on the table in front of God Name reality in prayer. But we don't stop there because we also have to do some heart work. We have to learn to examine ourselves. And this is my second point. Examine yourself. See, we're learning that prayer is fundamentally a place where we just get real with God about life. And that means we have to also get real about ourselves. We have to get real about ourselves. We don't just come and pray and name the situation we're in and and complain about it and we're allowed to do that. We should also use the opportunity to examine ourselves, have a good look in our heart and take a good look in the mirror in God's presence. Lord, what are you teaching me about myself through this hard time? Last week we thought about how life is full of troubles and some of them are your own making. We thought about the life of King David and how his own weakness and his failure and his sins had contributed to his problems. It's almost never one-sided, is it? A number of years ago, I was really privileged to take a class on preaching with one of the great American preachers of the last 50 years, a man called Haddon Robinson, Professor Robinson. And he was at the time 79 years old, and he was still teaching, and he was just wonderful. Just to be around him, you would learn things. And we were in the class, and he's teaching this class. And he taught the class. He knew it so well that he actually taught the entire class without a single note. Didn't ever look at his notes. He just knew it by heart. But one time in the class, he paused, and he just looked off. And he's a 79-year-old Christian. And he said, you know, sometimes I wonder if I've done a single thing in my life with a completely pure motive. (laughs) I wonder if I've done a single thing in my life with a completely pure motive. You know, that's okay. God knows about it. He knows what your heart's like. He knows your motives. And prayer is the place to reflect on that and find where we need to change. 
We don't just complain about our situation, we also search our hearts. And we find in this psalm some things that we should look at when we come into God's presence. Firstly, do we have a divided heart? Look at verse 2. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? Here it is. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? False gods, also known as idols. The great French reformer John Calvin said that the human heart is a permanent factory of idols. The heart is constantly manufacturing them. We are all constantly tempted to put our trust in idols, and an idol is anything or any person that you trust in rather than Jesus. So fusion, if you're on your sheet, halfway down the page, you see that question, what is a false god? It's anything that we trust in, or any person that we trust in, rather than Jesus. Now we're all constantly tempted to put our trust in idols, especially when life is hard and hurting. Dick Kyes is a, a, a writer and a thinker based at Labrie, Fellowship in Massachusetts, and he teaches that idols in the Bible travel in pairs. Idols travel in pairs. He says there's always a near idol, something near and kind of imminent that you can control, and there's always a far idol that's the big principle that's behind it. And these idols are, are actually standing in for the true God because the true God is, as we know, far. He is the, the great sovereign who governs the universe and he's also near the one who is right with us in our prayers. So an idol is standing in the way. So let me give you an example of a pair of idols. Uh, the idol of comfort. Some of us, the deepest place in our heart, what we really want is comfort. Because our heart is telling us that if we have comfort, then everything will be all right. We will be secure. We will be safe. Oh, if only I had comfort. Comfort is the deep idol. But what's the near idol? Well, it might be food. It might be food. Because when you eat certain kinds of food, you feel, your body tells you that you're experiencing comfort. And you feel better for a while. And for different ones of us, it's different things. For some, it's ice cream. For some, it's chocolate. For some, it's crisps. I don't know what it is for you. But there might be a sense that this food is not just food, it's actually an idol, something that's helping me to cope with life instead of turning to Jesus. For others, it's alcohol. The Bible teaches that alcohol is a good gift from God to be enjoyed, wine that makes glad the heart of man. But alcohol, when abused, functions as a false idol. Promises to give you comfort and takes away your joy and your health. Or for others, it's binge watching. You just lose yourself in a program or a series and you can watch a whole box set in a, in a, a couple of days. Or you just escape into movies. And that gives you comfort. It's, it's a near idol. Or for others, it's retail therapy. Do you just love buying shoes? You know, life, life hurts, but if you buy a pair of shoes, you do feel better for a while. For me, it's books, right? I'm not into shoes. Actually, that makes me look like a pretty big idolater when you see how big my library is. But anyway, let's move on. You see, um, one of our deep idols can be comfort. There are others. There are others. But the, quite, the key thing here is, when you're in prayer, are you using the opportunity to get to know your heart and its characteristic idols? Where do you tend 
to go? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Where do you tend to reach when life hurts and you're disappointed? So when you sin, don't just feel bad, but actually use it as an opportunity to pause and reflect. Why did I commit that sin at that time? Why was I tempted then and I fell in that way? There's a reason for it. Why are you particularly tempted in certain ways and not in others? You see, to some extent, we all have a divided heart. Theologians call it indwelling sin. There's still sin in there. And when we come to God in prayer, we have a golden opportunity to search our hearts, to examine ourselves, and to grow. Because we know that sin never, ever leads to freedom and joy, does it? It never does. Idols never, ever do what they promise. They promise you life, and then they take your life away from you. They take all you have and kill you. So we use our situation in prayer as a chance to examine ourselves. Do I have a divided heart? Secondly, do we have a bitter heart? Look at verse 4. Now I'm reading from our church Bible which says, Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Now this version says, Tremble and do not sin. The older version of this NIV 1984 version says, uh, be angry, but do not sin. And the, the English Standard Version, if some of you have got the ESV, it says that as well. It says, in your anger, do not sin, or be, be angry and do not sin. Yeah, I've got it here on the phone. Be angry and do not sin. And this word translated tremble is a word indicating strong emotion, like quivering with emotion. You know, like what you do when you're really upset. And it actually gets physical. Your, your body is upset and, and it's, it's kind of slightly out of control. So this isn't tremble of being scared. This is the quivering of somebody who's very upset. One commentator puts it like this. You can tremble or quiver with anger or rage, but don't sin. And oh, how real this is, isn't it? He's talking about somebody who's on their bed, quivering with rage, and saying, don't sin. We've all had the experience of being upset during the day and then going to bed and it all starts replaying. And it's like we're in an echo chamber full of our own angry voice. Now the Bible teaches that there is some anger that is righteous and right and good. Righteous indignation. You, we know that God is angry at some things, and God never sins. God's wrath is constantly at work in this world. We also know that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was gentle and lowly and, and meek of heart, and the most perfect, kind man who ever lived, Jesus at times was incandescent with rage about certain things. He didn't sin with it. So some anger is right. In fact, if we're not angry some of the time, there's something wrong with us. We should be angry about human trafficking, shouldn't we? We should be angry about racism. We should be angry about injustice, corruption. There's a lot of things we, we are right to be angry about. There's a good kind of anger. But our anger also has this tendency to turn into sinful anger and rage and boiling over into something wrong. 
The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, he actually quotes this psalm. And he says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And what he's saying is, don't stew on it. Don't lie there ruminating and going over it and over it in your mind. Don't let the sun go down. Be angry, yes, but then find peace and deal with it. Don't let it become bitter. Friends, has your life situation led you to have a bitter heart? Be very careful. Such bitterness causes you great harm. And bitterness causes great harm in the Christian community, in church. Hebrews 12, 15 warns, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. One person who is angry with something in the church, another person or a leader or something that happened to them or something that happened to them in the past but they feel that the church hasn't helped them enough. They may be right to be angry but they let it become bitterness and it's a root that goes down into the heart and then it defiles many. Causes trouble for them and those around them. The Bible's very strict about this. Friends, we've got to examine ourselves. Have I got a bitter heart? And let me say this now. Don't let this moment pass you by. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you now. In your anger, do not sin. It would be good for us, wouldn't it, to do this every evening. When you're on your beds... Search your hearts and be silent. Verse 4, when you're on your beds, search your heart and be silent. It's at last thing at night, you're in your bed, it's quiet, that the problems of our lives fill our mind. Or the small hours, maybe you did go to sleep but then you woke up and it's all there again. And these things can fill our hearts with worry and anxiety. They can overwhelm us with fear. Or they can stir a deep turmoil of anger and jealousy and rage. And so the evening is a good time to close the day in God's presence. And by the way, Psalm 3 uh, has often been thought of as a morning psalm because it says, I wake uh, and I go to sleep and I wake and you are with me. And Psalm 4 is an evening psalm. It's an evening prayer, a time where we say, Lord, as I sleep, you alone make me dwell in safety. So we learn in this prayer to name reality. Secondly, we learn to examine ourselves. But thirdly, we don't just stop with ourselves. We go to the Lord. We renew our acquaintance with him. We come back to our heavenly father. So the third and final point is trust God. Trust God. Notice how this psalm is so real about life and about our own hearts. But we do all of this in a third context, which is the presence of God himself. He is with you when you pray. And in prayer, we remind ourselves of that and the reality of the Lord who can be trusted. We can trust his character, what he is like. We can trust his deeds, what he has done. We can trust his words, what he has promised. And verse 1 brings to the center stage a key attribute of God. He is righteous. 
Verse 1 says, Answer me when I call to you my righteous God. And fusion, are you still with me? Are you? Yes, one member of fusion is still with me. God bless you. You are on the sheet. You can see there's a question that says the word righteous comes up twice in this psalm. What does it mean? Listen to Michael or ask your parents. Definitely ask your parents. Okay? My righteous God. What it means here is that God acts rightly in his relationships. God acts rightly. He does the right thing in his relationships. Unlike human beings. Human beings, even the best of us, can be fickle at times, can't we? We can be unreliable. We can be inconsistent. And the worst of us, we don't even want to talk about that. But our God is always consistent in his relationships. He does what he says he's going to do. He, God does what it says on the tin. And notice this is a personal relationship with this God. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. He's mine. If you're a Christian, you can say, my righteous God, my heavenly Father. How does he show us his righteousness? In this psalm, he sets apart believers for himself. Verse 3, know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. He hears when I call to him. No matter what other people are saying or doing, no matter what's going on, God loves you and he called you by name, Christian friend. He knows your name. He knows every day that's ordained for you. It's written in his book. He's going to call you home at some point. And he hears when you cry to him. He's listening. He is present. He's set you apart for himself. That means he's 100% committed to you. He hears when you cry. He shows us good. Psalmist prays, let the light of your face shine upon us. And the result of knowing this God is that he fills our hearts with greater joy than the things this world can provide. Have a look at verse 7. Verse 7 talks about probably the greatest joy that that society would look for and hope for. Remember, this is an agricultural society. And it's a, they were living in the Near East, and it's a place where there's not a lot of rain and not a lot of storage, and if crops failed, it could be disastrous. So what's the one thing you really want every year is a good harvest. And so on verse 7, they've won the lottery. Verse 7 says this, their grain and new wine abound. These are things that gave people joy. We've got a full barn of grain. We can eat. We've got grapes and we're making wine. We can be merry. They've just won the lottery. But if you think about it, it's quite precarious, isn't it? It's quite temporary. That joy is not going to last forever. The grain's going to run out. The wine's going to run down. Next year, there might be a bad harvest. We spent some time this summer driving through France, and we saw fields and fields of sunflowers. And on the way down through France, we were loving these big sunflowers, uh, fields and fields of them all looking at the sun. And on the way back through France, we realized there's a drought and most of the fields of sunflowers were dying. Their heads were down. They withered. And we spoke to a, a farmer who said, this is a really, really disastrous year for us. We don't know what's going to come next. So even the most precious things in this life are only temporary. Something might take them away. They will rust or spoil. 
But if you know this God, you can lie down in peace and safety because you know that your future is guaranteed and you know he's there for you. You're safe. And by the end of Psalm 4, the situation hasn't actually changed. But David's heart has changed. And that's the key. Prayer is the best kind of therapy. There's no hint here that the accusers have gone away or stopped their behavior. But something's changed. David's heart has changed. The external experience is still the same, but the inner circumstance, the inner spirit of the worshiper has changed. Prayer has led him to a peace of mind in which hard things can be accepted and carried. Verse 8, in peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. How do we find peace in spite of our circumstances? By trusting the Lord. How do we know we can trust him? For us it's that we remember the Lord Jesus Christ. One who was so confident in his heavenly father's love and, and sovereignty that he could sleep in a boat on the, in the middle of a furious storm with his head on a cushion. All his companions were terrified but he slept peacefully just like this person. And one who was so powerful and strong that when he stood up he could calm the wind and the waves with a word. Quiet, be still. And one who was so loving and sacrificial that in spite of his great strength, he laid down his life for his friends. In fact, he laid down his life for his enemies. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he lost his sleep, suffering in agony of spirit, and praying, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but let not my will but thine be done. And on the cross of Calvary, he saw it through to the very end. He drank the bitter cup to its dregs. And so Jesus Christ, having done all of that for you, will not now let you go, will he? No matter what your circumstance, he can be trusted. You can lie down in sleep. Remember to name reality in God's presence. Remember to examine your hearts. But also trust in the Lord who will make all things good. Let's pray. Loving Father, we just thank you uh, today again for your word to us and pray for those here who are struggling with turmoil or deep things uh, in their spirit and ask that you would minister to them now by the power of your spirit. Let them know that they can be unafraid. And for those who have seen today more clearly that there is an idol in their hearts, perhaps it's a divided heart or, or there is bitterness and anger, please minister to them now. Purify their motives. Help them to forgive. Draw near to us, Lord, as we sing these next songs and have your way. Amen.